0: Um, I think another important thing to keep an eye on, I know there's been some more polling on this recently, including in the New York Times and Siena about uh, Democrats' performance with Black and Hispanic voters. Um, Their overall success kind of obscured the point that, you know, Black voter turnout and voter enthusiasm for Democrats is not great in a lot of key states. Obviously, Hispanic-Latino voters are going to be a very consequential battleground. The other thing I think kind of got lost in 2022 that I've written a bit about for the 19th is that, yes, Democrats did very well in large part because of abortion and democracy issues, but a lot of voters don't know what the Biden administration and Congress have done, what bills have been passed. There've been a lot of surveys showing most people don't know about things like the Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS, and so that is gonna be a big messaging thing, especially, you know, for the Biden campaign and allied groups to deal with.
1: Welcome to Politics Is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara lee I'm Kyle Condon. Kyle, this week on the Crystal Ball, you continue a series you started earlier this year that examines how the most populous counties in the United States vote relative to the least populous counties in presidential elections from 1996 to 2020. Just to give some context, you found that in 1996, Bill Clinton won both the most populous and the least populous counties. He won the most populous by 15.7 percentage points and the least populous by a 1.8 percentage point margin. Um, by 2020, the gap between the most versus least populous counties was 39.2 points. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in your analysis and the changes that you've seen across elections?
2: Yeah. So what I did here is, and um, so they're about a little over 3,100 county, uh, counties are kind of equivalents in the, in the United States. And what I did was I just added up the, 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 bo- the largest source of, source of votes in 2020 until I got to about 50 50. So it was like that. What, what I've done in this series is the top half versus the bottom half. Top half is the most populous counties. Bottom half is the rest of the, rest of the state, or in this case, the rest of the nation. So nationally, 151 counties cast half the national vote, um, for, for president. And I just, w- I, I'd, I'd written about this previously and I wanted to just provide a little bit more historical context. And so, um, you go over the last quarter century presidential elections, uh, and, you know, of course it's natural to expect there to be what, what is essentially kind of like an urban slash suburban versus kind of like exurban, rural, small town split, you know, granted there are, there are all sorts of different kinds of places in both categories, but that's generally what we're getting at here. And, uh, you know so there's been this it's almost the gap between the two in terms of presidential voting is almost tripled in that time frame and there's sort of like three big takeaways that I, I thought were interesting. First one is that um that just the, the basic fact that this this gap has, has sort of exploded over time from about fourteen points to about thirty nine points over the course of a quarter century. Um this the second one is that uh there were sort of two big t- jumps when this happens. It's a two thousand and twenty sixteen election. Um, Al Gore in 2000 did perfectly fine for a Democrat compared to how Bill Clinton did in 96 in the big counties. He only lost sort of a few points in those counties. Um, but Bush, uh, George W. Bush did about a dozen points better in terms of margin in the bottom half counties. And so, um, you know, that contributes to a big widening of the gap of almost 10 points. And then the gap sort of strikes, continues to grow slowly over the course of the next several elections. And then it kind of widens out again with, with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016 and other 10 points. Um, so you've got two distinct elections that really are, you know, drive this. And, um, you know, I think in in terms of thinking about this historically, you know, the Trump realignment, I think is probably more famous is, is going to be more famous historically. But there was a similar kind of realignment in 2000 as well. That I think is important to to remember. And I think some of that may also be you're going from having Ross Perot being a big factor, getting almost 20 percent in uh, or 19 percent in 92. We get to eight and a half in 96. And there's some evidence that that you know more of those Perot people ended up going to going to Bush and sort of becoming Republicans, or maybe they were straight Republicans or or what have you. Um, and Perot is in some ways kind of you know, a populist figure that I think is, is, is something, is, is sort of Trump-like just in terms of that level of appeal and presenting sort of a, a different kind of message at that time than what the Republicans were offering. Um, so that's the second thing is that 2000 and 2016 were the really big drivers of this change. And then finally that, that this gap actually closed very slightly from 2016 to 2020. Um, it, you know, went from basically 39.9 to 39.2. So a very modest change. Um, but Biden improved. He improved them both the top and bottom half. So he improved a little bit more in the bottom half. And, you know, I think part of that was, was you know, that, that uh, um, you know, Biden's performance um, uh, w- was actually, you know, a little bit weaker amongst non-white voters. And, you know, some of the biggest counties are some of the most diverse places too. You think about, you know, Chicago and Los Angeles and New York City, et cetera. Um, and also that, you know, that Biden just had a little bit more appeal in some, you know, rural small town areas than Hillary Clinton did, I think. Uh, or there was some fatigue with Donald Trump. And, uh, and so he improved a little bit in those places. So those are sort of the three big, big takeaways from this. So there's a longer term trend of this gap exploding. Um, but it actually, it it slowed down significantly 2016 to 2020.
1: I think some other key takeaways from your analysis that might be worth pointing out is 2004 was also the year in which there was just a 1% of total votes cast for a third party. And that was sort of a high stakes election between George W. Bush and uh, John Kerry. Um, But I wonder if it has any lessons for us as we think about The rising number of voters now who are saying that they're likely to sit out Election Day 2024 um, and that those same voters are talking about wanting to have more choices, either a third, fourth or even fifth uh, party in the election. Um, And even as we're seeing organizations like No Labels considering whether or not to put out a third party ballot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. 2004 is the, is the low point for third party voting in this you know, 96 to 2020 time series. Um, you know, of course, the highest was, was, was 96 where you had pro getting most of that vote, although Ralph Nader also ran the first of his four presidential bids that year. Of course, his 2000 bid was, was more famous and, and quite possibly more impactful on, on the actual outcome. Um, you know, to, to me, the, the, the useful comparison has been 2016 and that that was also was an election where both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had fairly weak favorability numbers, and so there was a significant share of the electorate who negative views of both of them. Um, that was not as true in 2020 because both Trump's numbers and Biden's numbers were better than than you know than compared to to, to to their counterparts in 2016. Biden compared to Clinton and Trump compared to himself, um, and uh, you know so so in that election, you know you had these cro- a lot more cross pressured voters. And, you know, both Bi- Biden and Trump's numbers are, are fairly weak now. Uh, you know, both of them hover around about 40%, you know, approval slash favorability. Uh, and so you'd expect the third party share probably to to, to go up in 2024, for at least from the 2% in 2020. Um, but how much more is sort of an open question because, you know, voters do tend to come home at the end. Although but that's not to say the third party vote doesn't matter because, um, you know, it, 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 may be that the election is close enough that it would have turned out differently in a, in just a head to head case. So, um, that, that, that portion of the vote that's parked in your third party column is, is worth noting. And, you know, in, in, in a few of these years, there's a little bit of a difference between how the, um, the top half and the bottom half votes in terms of third party. In 96, the bottom half had a, had a, had a little bit higher of a third party share, which I think suggests that's the more Republican piece of the electorate. Sort of suggests that that that, that, you know, that some of the Republican vote was, or a significant amount of that Republican vote was parked in the Perot column. You get to 2000; it's actually very slightly higher in the top app, which maybe is suggestive of the, of the Nader effect in that election. In more recent years, um, 2020, 2016, there wasn't that big of a difference between the the top and bottom halves in terms of the the, the third party share.
1: So while we are here recording, there's also some breaking news about um, the congressional map in Ohio. Can you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about how the news about redistricting in Ohio, um, its map might affect elections next year?
2: Yeah. So this was one of the dominoes we were waiting to fall in uh, in redistricting this year was that Ohio has this very convoluted redistricting system that I'm going to go into detail on here, but Basically the 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 old version of the state Supreme Court had had ruled that the map used in 2022 was unconstitutional um based on state law, um, that it was basically it was too much a Republican gerrymander. And um the the so there were previous iterations of the map that were basically better for Republicans than this one, but it's also not necessarily a quote unquote fair map, however you, you would define that if people define it in different ways. But there was a possibility that um, this map would be redrawn for 20.4 based on court order, and that the map would basically get better for Republicans as a result. That the that the map stayed in, in place, um, I think, is actually probably good for Democrats because there are three basically three swing seats in the, in the state, um, and the Democrats won all three of them in 2022, uh, and we had them all parked in the toss up column as we we're waiting for the the new maps, and we're probably actually going to move two of those, uh, Marcy Capter. Democrat in Northwest Ohio and also Greg Lantman, Democrat in Cincinnati area. Um, probably can toss up to Leeds D. Um, Lantman, because, uh, his district is a Biden plus eight and a half district. And so that's, I think that's, that's a good enough Biden margin to get the Democrat an edge there. And Capturn is, a, is in a three point Trump district, but she, uh, is, is a you know, proven longtime incumbent. She's been in office for, for decades. Um, she won very convincingly in 2022, albeit against a, a very weak opponent. Um, so I think she maybe deserves the benefit of the doubt for now. So uh, that's something that we'll be, uh, I'll be, you know, uh, putting out there. I'm sure we'll write about Crystal ball soon.
1: And one other thing I think it's worth noting this week and, and we will continue to follow, but Alabama is once again appealing to the United States Supreme Court a lower court ruling that found the map of the state's congressional elections districts likely violates the, the Voting Rights Act and thereby weakens Black voters' power. We've talked about that previously here on Politics is Everything. Do you have any thoughts right now about where we might see this case go?
2: Unless the U.S. Supreme Court actually takes this case and reverses itself and, you know, maybe I you mean know, Brett Kavanaugh did leave some breadcrumbs basically saying that maybe if this was presented in a different way to him that maybe he would change his mind. So we can't necessarily rule that out. But it seems like the likeliest solution here is that Alabama is going to get a new seat that is a, a seat that's Democratic leading that will likely elect, elect a black Democrat. And so um, that would put, you know, that would that would give Democrats an extra House seat, basically. So you combine that with this Ohio news, um, you know, Republicans are probably going to get a new gerrymander in North Carolina, which is going to help them. There are other dominoes to fall on redistricting. but. Um, you know, as of right now, it's, it sort of it sort of seemed like, you know, maybe maybe Republicans would end up with a better map nationally at the end of 2024's redistricting cycle. And that's that I think is less. Clear.
1: Coming up next, we talk with Grace Panetta, a political reporter at the 19th. Grace previously worked at Insider for four years covering politics with a focus on elections and voting. And she's also a contributor to our 2022 election book, The Red Ripple. Stay with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Grace. You're doing some really stellar reporting at The 19th, which is focused on reporting on gender politics and policy. Um, I wonder if you could just start by sharing why this lens of coverage is so important.
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I would say gender is in every aspect of our politics right now. Women for a long time have made up over half of registered voters and half of the voters who turn out in elections. And so it's important not to think of women voters as an interest group, but as a really diverse, not monolithic part of the electorate. And now more than ever, issues relating to gender are playing a really prominent role in shaping our politics.
3: Hi, Grace. My name is Kylie Holzman. I am a second year here at UVA studying foreign affairs, and I'm also interning for the Center for Politics this semester. One of the things that we are analyzing is how the media treats women in politics. So we were wondering if you could talk about what you've observed and reported about media coverage of female candidates and how do you see Nikki Haley in specific being treated in comparison to her counterparts?
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. My colleague um, Mel Lenore Barkley has done a lot of great coverage on Nikki Haley. She's in a unique position as being the only woman. Um, really in the GOP presidential field. And women candidates we know on both sides are held to different standards than men candidates, whether that's in terms of perceived likability, this question of electability, which is kind of a trap because you have to raise money in order to be seen as electable and have certain qualifications. But you also need to be perceived that way to raise money. Um, And especially for conservative women, A lot of times they are, you know, fairly or unfairly presumed to be more moderate or more liberal than a man Republican candidate. So in a lot of cases, Republican women have to work extra hard to counteract that perception um, in terms of stereotypes when it comes to their gender. So in this campaign especially... Uh, it's really interesting. We've seen Nikki Haley talk a lot about her, you know, being a mom a lot about education. She's really linked into that as an issue. And she's attacked uh, the most powerful woman politician in the U.S. right now, Vice President Kamala Harris. That has been a very interesting trend we've written about at the 19th is how Haley especially has attacked Harris as a proxy for Biden.
2: There was an interesting, uh, the uh, CNN has been rolling out some polling over the last day or two, and they had, um, they, they did matchups with Biden and the other Republican presidential possibilities. And, you know, just like many other polls, Biden and Trump are basically tied and he's tied with Biden's Trump tied with other Republicans. But Haley was actually the one who, you know, had a, actually had a real lead, like, a, like, a I think it was like a six point lead or something, which I thought was kind of interesting in that, you know, she's, she's a huge underdog to get the nomination, but like. You could see the appeal of potentially nominating her if the Republicans actually did that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a couple things behind that. I think she had a very strong performance at the first Republican presidential debate. She was really able to establish herself as kind of the adult in the room um, and hitting her opponents on things like the national debt, Um, going back and forth with Vice President Mike Pence on abortion. I thought that was a really fascinating exchange. And she landed a lot of zingers and, you know, was sort of able to rise above the fray when you have some of the. The sideshows going on with candidates fighting each other um, on stage. And I think another thing that's helping Haley right now is kind of the, the, uh, the issues that Ron DeSantis is having in his campaign, you know, sort of the tumbles he's taken in the polls and his issues with donors. I think that's been helpful to Haley. But again, you're absolutely right, Kyle. She's still an underdog for the nomination at this point.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of that interesting dynamic we've been seeing about the differences between Republican primary voters and the general electorate, where she does really well in a general election, but among primary voters, you know, she's still back in third or fourth place, relatively speaking, to the others. Um, but part of that is something that we've looked into across a number of surveys over um, the last decade or so, you know, within the Republican party, there, there are partisan differences in perceptions of women candidates and partisan divides on acceptance of a, of a woman president. Um, and, and those divides are largely driven by male Republicans, um, you know, not being less supportive of women candidates. So that's sort of a challenge she has to overcome in the primary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's like people say, oh, yes, I would love a woman president, but not that woman. Um, and I think on the Republican side, too, there are a lot of dynamics that are really interesting. I've talked to you know experts about, especially with the lack of likely women nominees in Senate races, which is that there are just not as many pathways to you know advancing in Republican politics as a woman. I highly recommend um, for anyone listening, if you have not read Tim Alberta's big profile of Nikki Haley that he did in Politico magazine, I think in early 2021, that is a fascinating, you know, story about her rise in politics. Um, But it's absolutely true. There are fewer pathways. And you're thinking about sort of the the lines of succession in a lot of states. It's going to be, you know, more likely to be that man candidate who's gotten the support, has risen up through the ranks. And there are just fewer pathways for women on the Republican side. They don't have an equivalent to, you know, for example, an Emily's list to, you know, pour lots of money into, you know electing women. There are groups that are trying to do that on the Republican side, but a lot of times they don't feel like that it's a priority of Republican leadership on the way that it is on the Democratic side.
1: So one of the things you noted was just sort of the exchange that Nikki Haley had with Vice President Mike Pence um, on the debate stage and, and the key differences that came out between them on reproductive rights. And I wanted to ask you kind of more broadly how do you think reproductive rights are will will shape the 2024 election? And also, how do you think journalists should be going about covering this issue?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. I think absolutely we're going to see reproductive rights playing a role in 2024 simply because the landscape is you know still changing. Yes, we're a bit further out from the Dobbs decision itself than in the midterms, but there are still new state laws, new legal battlegrounds and battle lines being drawn. There's a lot of activity right now around ballot measures including in Ohio in 2023. And there will be several abortion rights related measures in 2024. And I think as long as abortion bans are having an impact on people's lives, it is going to be an issue front and center, especially given how much, you know, some Republican candidates have struggled with this issue. You know, we saw it on the debate stage. There are some like Vice President Pence, who has long been very staunchly anti-abortion. And, you know, Nikki Haley, I thought her response was interesting because she kind of said, listen, like, identify as pro-life, but this is not realistic. And we need to be honest with people that we are not going to do a national abortion ban. Um, And it's kind of an interesting crossroads, too, for the anti-abortion movement. In terms of covering this issue, I think it's really important, obviously, for journalists to stay rooted in the facts and the science um, about abortion. We're hearing a lot of rhetoric in in the Republican side in the primary debate about sort of post-birth abortions, which is not a thing or a medical term. And I think it's important for us to kind of demystify that process and be honest with readers about what abortion care actually looks like. Um, But also to, you know, it's so hard to keep up with the legal landscape, but it is super important right now. So to really take that time, understand what different state laws actually are, understand all everything going on with medication abortion and to resist falling into that sort of both sides trap um, with it and, you know, be rooted in the science because I think that gets lost in a lot of the political Coverage and discussions.
2: Uh, Grace, you wrote a uh, great chapter for us for our post-election book, The Red Ripple for 2022 about uh, voter turnout in the election, which was pretty robust. Maybe not as robust as it was in the 2018 midterm. Or obviously, you know, no midterm is going to match a presidential election. Um, you know, in the months that followed after you did that chapter, I'm wondering if there are any other things about the 2022 turnout that maybe came out that have been of interest to you. You know, one, I guess, just my own thinking about it was that, you know, I think the story after the election was, was, was kind of like the Republicans got decent turnout, but they just had like mm-hmm. a big time persuasion problem. Um, I don't, I don't know if you, you agree with that or if there are any other things that, that have come out that that are of of interest to you about turnout from 2022.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that. I think and I mentioned a couple of things in my chapter. That's absolutely correct. That I think there are a few points that got lost in thinking about 2022 turnout, one of which is that, yes, the electorate in many key states is more Republican leaning and Republicans still lost because of the candidates at the top of the ticket. And that is maybe something that is not going to be the case in 2024 was a very unique environment. Um, Right now, I would expect 2024 turnout to be very high because that's been the trend, even if it is a Biden-Trump rematch. Um, I think another important thing to keep an eye on, I know there's been... Some more polling on this recently, including in The New York Times and Siena about uh, Democrats' performance with Black and Hispanic voters. Um, Their overall success kind of obscured the point that, you know, Black voter turnout and voter enthusiasm for Democrats was not great in a lot of key states. Obviously, Hispanic Latino voters are going to be a very consequential battleground. Um, The other thing I think kind of got lost in 2022 that I've written a bit about for the 19th is that Yes, Democrats did very well, in large part, because abortion, democracy issues. But a lot of voters don't know what the Biden administration and Congress have done. what Bills have been passed. There have been a lot of surveys showing most people don't know about things like the Inflation Reduction Act, chips. And so that is going to be a big messaging thing, especially, you know, for the Biden campaign and allied groups to deal with. And especially in getting turnout of not just you know what we think of as swing voters, but also the kind of surge voters who are not regular voters but do vote in presidential races. So I think that's, you know something to keep an eye on is if voters become more aware of, sort of the all the many things that have been passed in Congress as they're thinking about the economy.
2: it's an eternal problem for for any administration, I think. and and I'd say particularly this one just because Biden doesn't dominate coverage the way I think that like a, a, a Trump did or maybe some past presidents did. But, um, you know, you, you an administration feels like it has things that they can present to the public. But the pu- it's it's just hard to it can just be very hard to get that message through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a big, big challenge. Um, but for the president, all the groups supporting him, Democrats running down the ballot, um going to be, I'm sure as you are, Kyle, very interested in watching some of these districts held by Republicans that Biden carried in 2020 from that standpoint and so how much abortion versus the economy, you know, factors in.
2: Absolutely.
3: Um, in the chapter that you wrote for the Red Ripple, you talked about the dramatic shifts in the election law landscape, um, in the divergent experiences voters have had at the polls and in how Americans chose to cast their ballot. Can you talk about these shifts and especially how they relate to partisan control in states, and what we can expect to see as we head into the 2024 election?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the story after 2020 is that the red states and blue states, by why enlarge, uh further and further apart um, when it came to their voting laws. We saw a lot of blue states moving to expand uh, mail-in voting, early voting, you know, speeding up the ballot counting process, which is a niche wonky thing I will not get too much into right now. Um, whereas a lot of red states move to not only restrict voting options, but to add more potential criminal penalties and barriers to the voting process. we we're seeing, you know, by and large, states continuing to move further apart. The other thing now is that, you know, it's no longer the case anymore that most people vote in person on election day. And this is a trend that began before the COVID pandemic. More states moving, more voters choosing to vote by mail or cast their ballots early. And now we're at a point where. It's, you know, no longer voting. The voting process elections can no longer be thought of as on one day. But over the course of the week or a month, depending on the state, I think that would have happened without the pandemic. The pandemic definitely sped up that trend. But we're definitely in a space now where voters across party lines are increasingly choosing mail and early voting. Um, and there's also, you know, we're still seeing a lot of polarization in how people are choosing to vote. The election day vote, now, when we sort of look at and analyze elections, um, we know that the election day vote in a lot of places is going to be likely, you know, more Republican leaning. Depending on the state, the mail in vote and early vote may be more Democratic leaning, although in person early voting is not as polarized. It's really with mail voting. Um, and looking forward, I think what's really fascinating is after denouncing mail in voting as fraudulent in 2020 and in 2022, a lot of Republican candidates, the RNC, are now, you know, mounting an about face and are trying to convince their voters to vote early and vote by mail. And are like, yes, we need to do ballot harvesting. We need to have this aggressive mail operation, even though, you know, the leader of their party spent years denouncing it as fraudulent and is facing criminal charges in part over those efforts. So that's going to be something really fascinating I'm watching from the political side of it is. Are Republicans going to be able to get their voters to, you know, stop worrying and love to learn uh, live, like mail-in voting, um, learn to love it? Or, you know, is it's that the lessons from 2020? Is that still going to be the case? And then on the legislative landscape, I think we're going to see a lot of these you know, trends continuing. I'm very interested to see how some of these, you know, expansions of mail-in voting actually play out in practice. And some of these new laws imposing new potential penalties on election workers. That's another trend.
1: One of the things that we have been covering and continue to follow is just sort of the persistent beliefs about elections being rigged, particularly because of the lies that have been spread and the misinformation, and malinformation that have been spread, including from the former president, but other candidates as well. Um, and and that's something that has also impacted election workers with um, increasing threats to election workers on their safety. Um, and you just actually covered, um, a ruling last week by federal judge Beryl Howell, um, that held Ruli Giuliani liable for defaming, um, former Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. Um, I wonder if you can just talk about why this ruling and, and some of the other cases to hold, um, folks accountable for spreading disinformation and for undermining the election system, um, uh, is is important as we head into the 2024 election, but also what advice do you have for other journalists who are covering these cases um, related to the 2020 election and, you know, really with an emphasis on how do we sort of rebuild trust and combat the um, declining confidence in our electoral system?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, first of all, It's really interesting, you know, seeing how some of these rulings have played out in the civil arena. It's really been in that civil cases where we've started to see some penalties for those who, you know, spread lies about the 2020 election and defamed election workers. Obviously, the biggest one being Fox News' settlement with Dominion voting systems. There are going to be some more movement in other cases involving Fox Newsmax, other voting machine vendors. Rudy Giuliani himself has faced professional sanctions um, for his actions during the 2020 election, as have other attorneys. So it's very interesting in this kind of civil professional sanctions space where we're seeing some consequences. I do think, obviously, from the perspective of a giant network like Fox, that has to be a bit sobering to have to cough up, you know, over $700 million. And I think that'll, that might change the incentives within the media business. Um, in terms of the political implications, though, you know, it's 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 not clear how and how much it's going to play out. But what we do know is that election workers have been suffering in the meantime as these cases have moved through the court system. Obviously, you know, the accountability, favorable rulings—that is the the key outcome here. Um, but you know, it, it is still the case that election workers have faced massive levels of burnout, increasing threats and harassment many times that do not get prosecuted or taken seriously by law enforcement. And the election workforce, it's important to remember, is majority women. It's a women-dominated profession like a lot of other civil service professions in places like Georgia. It's a lot of Black women and women of color. Um, And so I think that, you know, these upcoming criminal cases, the remaining civil cases we have related to the 2020 election are gonna be really important in setting precedent in our democracy as to how this gets handled kind of in, in the modern age. Um, You know, looking historically, obviously, American democracy has very much been tested before and overcome a lot of challenges. But this new sort of, you know, with social media and cable news, it's a bit of a different arena, a different ballgame. And I'll be interested to see if it changes the political incentives as well um, around, you know, for example, trying to message on elections being rigged and stolen. It did not work out very well for a lot of candidates in the midterms. But there are still some, you know, diehard believers in that message. So I think, you know, the political, it may be, become clear politically, you know, sooner than many of these court cases getting resolved, how that plays into 2024.
2: But it'll be very interesting to watch. Thanks for uh, Thanks for coming on, Grace. We appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Grace, for your reporting. Listeners, you can find a link to Grace's articles on the 19th in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four, politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.